You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my lovely and talented friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey, guys. Hey, and today we have a very special guest, Dr. Michael Snyder. He is the chairman of the genetics department at Stanford. He's also the director of the Center for Genomics and Personalized Medicine. He's going to be speaking to us today about some of the research he does in analyzing big data to improve our health. But first, we want to talk to you, Mike, just about your background. As I mentioned to you earlier, we're really, really impressed that you've done a TED Talk. So we just we want to know the behind the scenes of TED Talks. How does that work? Well, it was actually a TEDx talk, though. So those are put on. Um, oh, just way. just a TEDx talk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. Okay. We're going to say it all sounds super fancy. So we're we remain impressed. I don't know. They're just a lot of fun. You get up there and you, you know, give your spiel. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm pretty excited about what we do. So it went pretty smoothly. Yeah, it went great. So do, do you put the feelers out that you're interested in doing a TEDx talk or they come to you and go, we love what you're doing. We want you to talk about it. Or how does that work? Oh yeah. They come to me. Um, Cause I'm, pre- you know, I'm a typical scientist. I'm pretty focused on my work. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, you know, happy to oblige. So what parameters do they give you for a TED talk? Like what's the time frame? What, uh, what do you talk about? It's about 15 to 17 minutes, as I recall. And so then they just say, just talk about your research and they don't give you any yeah, put together a topic, uh, try and keep it simple. So it's, you know, accessible to everyone. So that's what we do and did. So were you a little bit, you know, I know you're the chairman of the genetics department at Stanford, so probably not a lot intimidates you, but were, was that a little bit intimidating? No, not really, because I give a lot of talks. <laughs> yeah. you know, when I was an assistant professor, sure, I used to get nervous. I used to even practice my lectures, things like that. But now I give so many talks, uh, sometimes I'll put them together on the plane as I'm heading to center. Oh, my gosh. I cannot <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> you had a, a pretty impressive collection of all of the wearables and the devices when you gave yeah. that talk. I mean, I was looking going, I wonder why there was because I didn't... Oh, at the, the time that they start the video, like there's just this big paper bag on the table next to you. <laughs> and then you start going in and it's kind of like Mary Poppins bag. It's just like, here's one device. Here's another device. Here's another and another. And it's like, I was waiting for the lamp to come out at the very end because you, you pulled so many various devices. I didn't even like, I had no concept that there were that many things that a general consumer could where, and of course, for our listeners, Dr. Schneider is the guru of all of these wearable devices and ways to track your general health, among among other things, you know, other things that also require prescriptions and advanced help, but the things that are available on the market and and you can get. And he just kept pulling one after the other. I had no idea that there were that many out there. I think of like the Apple Watch, the Fitbit, and that's that's it. Yeah. And I thought that was very impressive as well. And the other vibe I got from seeing that paper bag was this guy is not intimidated by this talk. He just brings a paper bag and starts pulling stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I was really impressed by the got, you know, not well, I was I didn't realize there was a golf swing kind of thing. I forgot what you called it. It was a wearable that measured your swing, you know, with the golf club. There is, yeah. 
there's over 900 wearable devices on the market. So maybe backing up a little bit for people in the dark here. So our, our lab's all about big data and health. We like to use different data to try and manage people's health, you know, follow people's, track people's health, see what happens if things go off. And so uh, I'm sure you all know when Fitbits and some of these garments came out a long time ago, people were using them as fitness trackers, right? They put them on the wrist, figure out their activities, look at their heart rate sometimes, get the idea of their patterns and throw it in a drawer. So our stick was to try and see if we could use these for health monitoring, which really hadn't been done at that time. Just consumer grade devices that literally millions of people now wear. In fact, right now, 50 million people in the U.S. wear a smartwatch. So uh, there are over 900 devices of all sorts, as you say, smartwatches, smart rings are the ones we mostly work with. But there's other things too, continuous glucose monitors for diabetes monitoring. We're built and are following an exposometer that will measure airborne exposures, actually. So, oh, wow. Yeah. And as you point out, there are certain things for to improve uh, you know, athletes are now using these to try and improve their gait, their stride, just so they can increase their performance. Uh, and as you mentioned, the golf one for golf swings. Yeah, that's, that might be on my Christmas list if I can if I can get it this Christmas. I think that'd be a really cool thing for my husband. I was just <laughs> thinking the exact same thing of thank you for that uh, little tidbit. I will file that away. <laughs> it's just amazing that, you know, I, I mean, like. I kind of think of like the beginning of all of this almost started with like the mood rings of the 70s. <laughs> oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. In a sense. That's an early wearable, Susan. That's a great, great analogy. It's like the first wearable. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you think about it, I mean, what we're doing now, as you, you may know, we're trying to detect infectious disease and stress with these devices. So, uh, in fact, the way we got into this was, again, we were putting these on. So, we follow me very deeply. You can see I wear four smartwatches. <laughs> Let me let me interrupt for a second. When you go to the grocery store and people see your four watches, do they ever look at you twice or is that just kind of a normal thing, you know, when you're out in California? Uh, no, it's not a normal thing. I do get the looks. <laughs> <laughs> you're probably used to it by now, right? I am. You know, where it catches the most attention, of course, is in the airports when you're trying to go through security with all your devices. Pulling off clothes and devices. And well, <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, they're, they're, because I have a lot of plastic, they, uh, I have to take a few off to make it through the metal detector. But in general, <laughs> I make it through just fine. And and it's rare they stop me, except in Heathrow, I'll get stopped pretty much every time. Oh, yeah. Uh, where they'll, and then they do the, the wipes to make sure they're safe. So it does catch their attention more than anyone's, I suppose. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, before we get too deep into things, let's do our question of the day and then we'll kind of dive a little deeper into wearables. Okay. All right. All righty. I recently went off birth control after being on it for 13 years as my husband and I were going to try to conceive. Within a month, I gained 13 pounds, had horrible acne and cramps that woke me up at night in pain. The first month we tried to conceive, we got pregnant and had a chemical pregnancy. It's been five months since, and we are still trying. I knew I had some sort of hormonal imbalance due to my symptoms, so I went to my OB. She suspects PCOS. My AMH levels were very elevated, and so was my sex hormone binding globulin, but my androgens, FSH, LH, and prolactin were all normal. My ultrasound showed both ovaries were polycystic. My question is, could I still have PCOS without elevated androgens? What could be preventing me from getting pregnant? I'm feeling so discouraged and emotionally exhausted. So did she mention, does she skip months without having periods or she has regular periods? Uh, she did not mention her menstrual cycle. 
So there's three criteria for PCOS. And if you have two of the three, sort of you fit into that box. So irregular cycles where you skip a month here and there without having a period. The other thing we look at are androgens or high hormone levels, high male hormone levels. And it sounds like you don't have that. But then the third potential is if we look on ultrasound and we count all the little tiny eggs, the microfollicles that we see or antrofollicles, if you have more than about 12 between the two ovaries, then that's the second criteria for PCOS. So if you have two out of those three criteria, voila, you have it. Generally for fertility patients, we only worry, or really the irregular period part is the only part that really makes it more difficult for you to get pregnant. Um, so if you're having regular cycles, I don't know that that's a factor, even if you truly have the diagnosis of it. What do you think, Carrie? So I would say that even though she doesn't have the elevated androgen levels by blood tests, that's only part of the criteria for hyperandrogenism. It's also your symptoms. So if she's got acne and potentially hair growth that she doesn't want, that means that the androgens can still be elevated. And sometimes we see that because even though the androgen levels themselves are normal, the androgen receptors within the skin are a little bit more hyperactive, a little bit more sensitive. And so they see a normal level and respond over the top for it. The other thing is it takes a very, very small swing, even just 1% in free androgen levels to be elevated and to have a systemic effect. And so there may be some of that going on and, and we don't really know until we know more of a pattern of what the menstrual cycles are doing, but if they're irregular, then she's hit all three criteria at the very least. It sounds like she's got two. So PCOS may be a component of that or some sort of ovulatory dysfunction related to hyperandrogenism. And the elevated AMH level goes along with that. You know, the higher the AMH level, the less likely you may be ovulatory. And so potentially, you know, seeking out some help either with your OB-GYN or a local reproductive endocrinologist might be helpful because, you know, even if you're having, quote, regular cycles, if you're considering maybe 40-day cycles as regular, you're still having one, you know, kind of once a month, that's not still within the normal range. So you may need some help ovulating and... I don't think things look terrible. Um, you know, dealing with ovulatory disorder is one of the easier things to deal with in fertility care. Um, but sometimes you just need a little help. The other frame of reference is you really only get pregnant once, especially when you're newly trying, uh, about 20 to 25% of the time. And so the fact that you've only been trying for five months, have had a pregnancy, even if it didn't end the way that you wanted it to, you're not actually doing so bad. So take heart. Don't don't throw in the towel just yet. Hang in there. Definitely keep working with your doctor, but I wouldn't bail just yet from this, this whole project. Like the odds are really good. Even if it's a really obnoxious journey to get there, the odds are are good you're gonna get there. So kind of along that same line, Mike, you had mentioned just a minute ago about one of the things that you're doing in your research is you're looking at things that I think can be measured in the blood that sort of determine how far along a woman is in her pregnancy, which I know is really important, particularly not maybe not so much in the United States or maybe in the United States, but certainly in other countries where they don't have ready access to, to medical care. So tell us a little bit about that. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, sure. It comes out of our research as we were trying to just, you know, understand the molecular events that go on through pregnancy. We were doing these very deep profiles on people. And in the end, we saw markers or you have a incredible biochemical changes throughout pregnancy, as I'm sure you all know <laughs> <laughs> and feel. Um, yes. Basically, what happens is, yeah, we found certain markers that can tell you exactly what stage you should be at. So they help us predict gestational age or time to deliver even. And I think in the future, if you think about it, it could be quite powerful, not just in 
following these particular situations, how the pregnancy is going, but you could potentially plan your events around this, you know, when to stop work and all this sort of thing, <laughs> if you can get very precise about it. So it has, you know, all kinds of connotations associated with it. So what are the markers that you're looking at, just out of curiosity? I know fetal fibronectin came out probably close to 20 years ago as kind of a marker for potential preterm labor. Is it something similar to that or is it completely different than that? Yeah, well, it's about 43 markers. It's a a combination of things. Yeah, so it's it's a number of different things. Uh, A number of them are hormones. A lot of them are molecules that we don't necessarily even, you know, understand entirely what their effects are, but there are things that change throughout pregnancy and obviously things we'd like to study further than two. But from the delivery prediction and gestational age prediction there, yeah, it's a combination. And again, some are higher at different stages of pregnancy. So they they can be very informative. As somebody who delivered three preterm babies, (laughs) (laughs) this is this is very interesting. And, And it was funny how you mentioned about taking off work. For my third pregnancy, my boss scheduled me out until my 39 week C section and I had never made it past 36 weeks. I thought it was absolutely hilarious. I was like, yeah, I'll see the other I'll see you on that one. Um but I'm curious as to like when you're talking about predictions as to potential delivery, is it potential delivery in like preterm labor or other health causes of needing delivery? You understand? Because like I had severe preeclampsia once, I had preterm rupture of membranes another time, different things like that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I should point out it's still in the research phase. So you have to take what we discover in the lab and then translate it later and validate it on a larger group. So I, I don't want to overpromise here, uh, but it's definitely following so-called normal pregnancy. But when someone did come a little early, we actually saw the shift in the marker. So I'm hopeful that it'll be there now with other sets of studies running to study preterm birth. Exactly. And we have some candidate markers there. But again, it's a combination. It's no one marker. Uh, and so the goal is to do just that, to be able to come up with, you know, things that will predict who's going to have preterm birth. So we're reproductive endocrinologists. So we deal with really, really, really preterm birth, as in recurrent miscarriage. Right. So using those same markers, and you know, I know you haven't done the research yet, but do you envision a time where you could use those same markers or maybe a little bit different panel to maybe look at women? Because we're really, I, I think we're at a standstill on recurrent pregnancy loss. We really don't have very good markers at all to predict. And there's really just a handful of things we can check patients for to say, yeah, you know, you've got antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. So therefore we know to treat you with Lovenox. There's very few disorders that we test for and really don't have any treatment. So it's really frustrating for both physicians and patients. Any thoughts about that at all or? Yeah, I guess my own thought is it's a pretty heterogeneous situation that's recurrent, right? So some problems can be with the placenta, some can be with the, you know, the fetus. And so it's probably a large combination of things that could go off. And so uh, basically we have to understand them all. And if we can understand and get markers for placental situations versus, say, fetal situations, and it's probably large numbers of different fetal situations, uh, as you probably know, in the in the first you know, month or so, a, a lot of uh, situations are aneuploidies in the fetus. So too few or too many chromosomes for people that are listening. There's obviously, you know, a health to the fetus problem. And so that tends to lead to pregnancy loss. But how many of our patients would love to know, like, you know, we do a lot of PGT in our practices where we're testing the chromosomes and sometimes we still have miscarriages and our patients are sitting there and they're like, 
Do I use a gestational carrier? Do I keep on going to myself? Is the problem me? Is the problem my uterus? Is the problem that there's an issue with the fetal development? Like it would just be a godsend literally to have more information, to be able to give patients more information, make the next decision. No, and we're not there yet. We're a long ways from there, to be perfectly honest. We know there's a genetic component in some situations. We know uh, because it runs in families and other times it's probably environmental. And so uh, the NIH, as you probably know, is funding two centers. We're fortunate to that happen have gotten one of these. Ruth Lathy is, Lathy is the PI of ours at Stanford, and we're teaming up with UCSF folks uh, to try and get at the, the basis of this, the genetic basis. But I predict it'll go beyond genetics. We'll hopefully see other things. And, and aside from genetic markers that might tell who's at risk, maybe we can find other molecular markers, that's the goal as well. And maybe that would subtype, you know, what's going on, meaning these are placental situations, these are fetal ones, and, and we need that kind of research if we're ever going to figure this out. So do you envision those being markers that would be able to be measured in the blood? You know, because the biggest, I think, problem that we have with the placenta is, you know, and trying to figure out if it's placenta or fetus or uterus is you can't exactly do biopsies on people when they're pregnant with a healthy pregnancy. So it's just so hard to figure that out. Are the markers that you're talking about ones that we could actually get at through serum as opposed to doing biopsies or? We are looking at blood, plasma and such. So that may turn that up, but we're also trying to get at molecular mechanisms too. So we are looking at cases, unfortunately, where the loss has occurred. And then we'll look at the fetus to try and understand what's going on. And that may or may not lead to markers. It's hard to predict. Yeah, we're also looking. That's great. That's awesome. And on the genetic side, of course, we're, we're mostly looking at it from the mom situation, meaning we, we can sequence their genome anytime before they're pregnant. <laughs> and if we can get predictive about what's going on, you know, we see may learn genetic loci. That's the goal. And nobody knows how many places in your genome, places in your DNA that are contributing to this, totally unknown. So it could be 10, it could be 100, it could be 20,000. Nobody has any idea. So this is what we're trying to get at. We just have to dig in, get started and see what we can learn. So one of the things that you mentioned when you were first talking is measuring stress. And many of our patients, they come in and they're like, I am, I am overworked, overstressed, over everything. And I think sometimes the definition of stress as it applies to most of us out in the general world is different than what you would think as a definition as a scientist and what you're measuring. So when you're measuring stress, what is that to you in a scientific realm? And does that correlate with any of the, the stress that someone undergoes just by having a really high intensity job, for example? So we, believe it or not, we are studying all kinds of stress in our lab too. Um, mental health, we're very focused on infectious disease stress. <laughs> so with the wearables, just because of the way we got into this, we started putting these devices on me as, a, as you saw already and then a cohort. Uh, and and you, some people say, why are you wearing so many? It's because we're trying to compare them and they, they have different features as well. And what we've discovered is that we can tell when someone's getting ill from an infectious disease prior to symptom onset. And it's because their resting heart rate jumps up. That's the number one signature. Although other things go off too, heart rate variability, which is the variability between your heartbeats. Uh, believe it or not, that's a pretty important marker of your health. We normally have variable heartbeats. Uh, if it's super regular, something's off. Could be cancer, could be all kinds of things, believe it or not. So we're pushing that too. But anyway, what we've discovered is that we can tell, we discovered on me of all things from my Lyme disease. I first figured out my Lyme disease because my blood oxygen dropped from one of these pulse socks are called that you put on your finger. And I saw my heart rate 
uh, went up. And I later learned my skin temperature went up too, which you can measure from a smartwatch. So we, from that, it told me something was off. And then I later did get a fever and I got diagnosed with Lyme. But the first thing that tipped me off, and I never had a bullseye, by the way. So it was actually my smartwatch and a pulse ox. And then we went back and looked at all the data we had and saw that every single time I was ill from viral infection, once I was, I was asymptomatic, but I, I knew I was ill because there's a certain marker, it's called CRP that was elevated. And every single time I had high heart rate and high skin temperature, believe it or not. And it always appeared prior to symptom onset because it goes up before you necessarily feel your symptoms. So now we've rolled this out big time for COVID detection. So we can, we have a study going on now. Love to have all the listeners <laughs> come join our study, uh, innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables, innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables. Little plug there. Uh, <laughs> you have to bring your own device. And um, yeah, it, it works. It works. Uh, we can set off alerts. We'll set off a red alert. Now, it's not just COVID. Any infectious disease will trigger this. It works about 80% of the time, I should say for detection prior to or at the time of symptom onset. So we do miss it some, and that's because we're still trying to get better baseline and more measurements on people. But heart rate is the number one thing. And then, you know, these days people look for illness through temperature usually. And if you think about it, that's just a 300-year-old method. It does work, and it works for actually people going through the menstrual cycle. You may know their, their temperature change. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Trust me, we do know that. <laughs> yeah, but you can pick it all up with a consumer-grade smartwatch, believe it or not. So you can see where you're at in your cycle with this. Now, other stressors will trigger some of these things, too, like psychological stress. And we've seen this. So we're, we're annotating all these alerts we're getting, meaning we're, we're trying to see what their costs. And some are mental stress. So Mental stress has a certain signature as well. Huh. Heart rate does go up with uh, when you have mental stress, uh, whether it's work-related or family-related. It doesn't matter. It will go up. But I'm not so sure your respiration changes the same way it changes during a viral infection. So we're hoping these different physiological signatures can tell you what kinds of stress. And that part we haven't worked out yet. We're still working very, very hard on that. But uh, I expect that'll be the case, that you'll see... You know, these alerts go off and say, one will say, you know, this is... Uh, um, this is Lyme disease. <laughs> but now, I know we can tell the difference between a bacterial and viral infection because the signals are very, very different. Yeah. So how big are the jumps that you're seeing in heart rate or in temperature? I mean, most people can spot the obvious if it's going up 20 beats or you're going up by, you know, three, however many degrees, because the person's going to feel that. But how subtle are these changes that you're picking up ahead of time? Yeah, it turns out it's two beats per minute is we picked up for a COVID case. So the average is seven beats per minute. So it's it's not huge, but it's not much. Yeah, but think about it. you're measuring 24-7 on these things, right? Mm-hmm. So they're collecting a ton of data on you. And so over a course of a few hours, if you're up a few beats per minute, that will look very, very different. So how does the viral signature differ from the bacterial? I thought that's really interesting. Yeah, it's just the magnitude of the signal is, is clearly much, much stronger for the bacterial one. The heart rate this is much higher. And I think the respiration is different. Now, not all devices measure respiration. They're starting to. So I think those patterns are different as well. So if our listeners are part of this study, did I hear you correctly? And you said you'd alert the person that something was going on? Yeah, we alert them. It's a research study right now, but we're trying to, we build a system that's pretty cool that's scalable for millions of people. So our vision is that you may know 3.8 billion people have a smartphone. 
And if we compare that with a smartwatch, we can actually have a health monitor for 3.8 billion people on the planet. And these are not that expensive. They'll they'll get they'll be twenty dollars in the future. So we can and even remote parts of the world, people have smartphones. It's pretty common. So we could actually have a health monitoring system for a lot of the planet right now. One thing that I was really impressed with when I listened to your talk at ASRM was that you were mentioning that it's easier to compare you to yourself than comparing to other people. And that is really important in, in our industry because everybody's like, oh, well, my girlfriend did this and so-and-so did this and really trying to individualize healthcare. Can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, no, that's the whole nature of what we do. So it's at two beats per minute. You can't tell my Lyme disease by looking when I'm sick and comparing with 500 other people because it's all over the map, right? What people's heartbeats are and resting heart rates and things like that. So, uh, but I, it's a very, very simple thing to pick up when I know what my normal healthy baseline looks like. That two beats per minute stands out, especially when you measure over several hours. It's something, you know, something's up. And again, you're not symptomatic yet. Between the time you first get infected with a typical cold till the time fevers show up, it's about 30 to 48 hours. Uh, and for COVID, it's actually even longer. That has a longer pre-symptomatic period. So that means you're going through this period where, to be honest, you're, you're infectious. You're probably infecting others without even knowing it because the symptoms haven't kicked in yet. But these devices are sufficiently sensitive that they can pick up this difference from your healthy baseline. And so that is our mantra. It, it's worked out many times. We caught someone with 2P with pre-cancers because their molecular markers were off and we caught saw someone with liver disease same thing while they were healthy so we had of the 109 people we were following for this first study it turns out 49 learned something pretty important from this deep profile it wasn't just all wearables wearables found some of it found one of the heart problems actually on one of the individuals but uh so it was often molecular measurement sometimes it was a genetics that we did on people for example we had one person who had a BRCA mutation who had no idea uh, and that turned out to be powerful. About half of, you may know, half of the BRCA cases out there, they're, they're spontaneous. They're not necessarily familial, hmm. running in families. So, so what that means is, yeah, that this person, by getting their DNA sequence, learned something pretty important, right? They'll get, they're getting screened a lot more as a consequence of that. Are you running any other studies that if patients are interested in, they can sign up for? Well, if you're in the Bay Area, you can join the one I just described where we're doing these very, very deep profiles on people. Although these days, if you join that study, you have to do our fiber study. So <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> oh, no, it actually is fun. You know how you hear fiber is good for you? But it's kind of a weird comment because fibers come in all shapes and sizes, what have you. Some are long, some are short, some are greasy, some are actually water soluble. Uh, some are, yeah, they're, they're just all very different. Some are positively charged, some are negatively charged. So we're trying to just go in there and figure this out, right? Which fibers are really good for you and do what? We already found one that reduces your cholesterol. No kidding. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, now I feel better about my wheat germ flaxseed and uh, cereal I had this morning. So, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, Mike, this has been so informative and so interesting. I think we could talk to you for a long, long time, but you probably have better things to do on a nice Sunday morning. But we really appreciate you being here. And I guess as one last word, where, where do you see things going in the future with wearables in terms of things that you can measure? Yeah, I see everyone wearing one of these things. And, and then probably in the future, they may even be implantables rather than wearables. But, uh, and the reason for that is it's just like your car. 
you don't drive your car around without a dashboard. Why are we all going around right now without something following our health and displaying it? We've built in a way it'll come up right on your iPhone. You can see your health monitoring. And that's how it'll be in the future. That And again, it's just something there. It's not going to replace physicians or anything like that. It's really there to augment following your health and keeping people healthy. If something goes off, catch it before symptoms, because that's often very, very late. And so that's our, that's our mission. It's to follow people while they're healthy. Well, you need a whole actually infrastructure, though, to figure out how to pay for it, because right now the medical system, you know, focuses on treating people when they're ill. So we've got to shift their thinking. That's probably another whole podcast. Yeah, I guess roads and bridges for now and, and health infrastructure next, right? <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. And be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit questions that you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We also love ideas. So let us know what you are thinking and want to hear. As always, the podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. I I wish we could hang out for the entire day and just <laughs> pick your brain on all of the different areas that, that you have um, gone into. But um, thank you so much for our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.